Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Associate Professor of the Department of African, African American, and Diaspora Studies, David Peer. In their conversation, Professor Peer, a trained ethnomusicologist, discusses his current project on Ugandan popular music. They also discuss the synthesis of music traditions and the score to Ryan Coogler's film, Black Panther. Well, this summer I'm going to Uganda for two weeks at the beginning of the summer and then do some writing and travel around a bit, just, you know, maybe take a little vacation here and there. Um, but I'm not teaching this summer, so. What will you do in Uganda? Well, I'm conducting further research that's going to go into my current book project. And this is the one you did, you worked on during the fellowship as yes. well? Yes, yeah. yes. My current book project is on a musical genre in Uganda, which is called Kadomu Kamu. Kadomu Kamu means one guitar, and the music usually consists of someone playing a guitar and singing sort of elaborate lyrics in vernacular language, Luganda language. And um, it has a bit of a, I guess you could call it like a traditional Ugandan sound. There are certain rhythms that you hear over and over again. And it also has a sort of uh, traditionalist uh, outlook in a lot of the music, though yeah. it's very much a modern, a modern traditional style. It's been around since... Uh, the 1950s, maybe a little bit earlier, but around the time when guitars or became common in Uganda and also at the birth of the recording industry, uh, the commercial recording industry in Uganda. So it's about this genre, but it's also about how people use music and older musical genres like this to, to remember the past during a time in, in Uganda's history when there are sort of a lot of impetuses to forget about the past. Yeah. Um, Uganda right now is a rapidly growing country. They're bulldozing a lot of old institutions, and there's a lot of enthusiasm about capitalist growth. Uh, so, and also, Uganda is a place that's had a, a pretty fraught history, especially in the in the past five decades, with dictators such as probably a lot of people have heard of Idi Amin. So, a lot of people don't want to look backward. Um, right, But those people who do want to revisit the past, one of the ways they do it is through listening to music, talking music, talking about music, sharing it, remixing it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm sort of interested in this genre as something that has the mark of the past, but is being uh, used in the present to remember and think about how the present relates to the past. So when you go to these um, research trips to Uganda, are you working with musicians, the musicians that are making the music, or how did, who are you approaching while you're doing your research? Yeah, mostly I, uh, I talk to musicians who make music, I mean, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but I also talk to um, fans. I okay. talk to yeah. ri- people at radio stations and ask them, you know, why do you play these particular songs? How do you get the songs in the first place? Um, and my research may extend beyond... Uganda too, because a lot of this music, these old records, no longer exist in Uganda. They're in private collections uh, uh, of Europeans mostly. And I, you know, there's really no record that these albums are out there. I just watch eBay, and then all of a sudden there's a flood of 
of Ugandan records from the 1960s. And, uh, you know, I sort of have to watch as they fly away because each one goes for about 100 bucks, and right. uh, I can't afford to buy them all. But, you know, so this is another thing I'll be writing about, you know, the problem of the musical past not being accessible for the most part to, to Ugandans themselves. Well, that brings us to a nice little segue because we I brought you here based on a panel you did for Black Panther, and there's that one scene in the museum and the critique of Killmonger of of these African items being in this British museum. So you see sort of you see the same thing with what you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, I would say. Uh, that that problem of of African art, you know, being housed mostly in in European and American institutions, or a lot of it, is maybe even doubly a problem when it comes to popular music of mm-hmm. African countries, because um, you know at least the art is in institutions where it's accessible to people. But for the oh, most right. part, popular music records are just in private ownership. And those people may publicize what they have, or they may just decide not to. There is an archive at Uganda which is trying to collect Ugandan popular music, but you know, there's only so much they can do with the resources they have. I also see, uh, you know, there are certainly. I think there's a new institution that's trying to collect all the popular music of the world. Wow. Maybe Brian Eno is involved. I'm not sure, but okay. he tweets about it. Yeah. But you know, hopefully that that collection will pay more attention to some of these records from, from African countries, which are now just uh, sitting in people's basements and being traded among co- collectors. So this is a, a song by, came out in 1973 by an artist named Dan Mugula. And it's called uh, Mutesa Balaba Taliwo Buganda. And that means uh, Mutesa, they saw that he was not there in Buganda. And, so this song was made, it's, it's about a historical event that happened in 1966. The king of Buganda, the new independence government, decided they didn't want him around anymore because mm-hmm. he was causing too much trouble for the new nation. So they raided his palace. He escaped over a back wall and escaped into Europe, into England where he died in exile. Wow. Um, so this is... This song was written maybe six years later, um, and it's mourning his absence, the king's absence, and, and attributing all sorts of problems to current day Uganda to the fact that the king is not there. In fact, his body was not repatriated. His oh, wow. body was yeah. kept overseas. Mm-hmm. So this song spoke directly to people of the Baganda ethnicity in Uganda who were royalist in terms of their political sentiments. They wanted to reinstate the old king. But what was interesting about it was that uh, I found it on YouTube and someone just like three years ago had put a new video on it. So kind of made a, a mixing of a new video with this old song and using it to talk about current political events that they didn't like. So it's kind of this reuse of this event of the Kabaka's, the king's exile, and the music being used to to remember that event and to apply it to different contemporary situations that the Baganda people did not like. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is an example of what I was talking about with uh, music being used to remember often in very sort of political ways. So here it is. (laughs) 
But the, the scratchiness of the record, I think, is part of that takes you back to the past, doesn't oh, yeah, it? Oh, yeah, right? yeah. And so when these this is played on the radio, it's played with that really bad, scratchy record sound. And mm-hmm. among the other songs that show up on the radio, which are highly digital, you know, yeah. really loudly mastered, etc., this, I, I think it must draw people back into remembering, thinking about mm-hmm. the past, just from the sound quality alone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's great. The other thing I do I didn't mention is, you know, a, a lot of these guys are still around and touring mm-hmm. for very little money. They've pretty much been closed out of all the major venues that young pop artists get to go to. Oh, so okay. you have to go out to the villages and they're maybe playing in a tent like a traveling, you know, vaudeville show. But they're still playing and still have fan bases, but institutionally they're no longer supported the way they were in like the 1970s, 1980s. Okay. Well, going back to Black Panther, as I mentioned before, I, I attended a, a, a panel discussion here on UNC's campus, and your presentation, I really enjoyed it because you focused on the score of Black Panther and kind of critiqued the movie through the use of synthesis of different musical genres. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the Black Panther score um, was written by Ludwig Göransson, who is uh, a, a Swedish-born producer and composer who went to school with Ryan Coogler at uh, USC and had worked with them on previous movies that he'd done. And the two of them have said in interviews that they had a couple different aims in writing. The, and by the way, I should say, when I'm talking about the score, there was also a separately produced album by right. Kendrick Lamar, hip-hop album, uh, which I'm not really familiar yeah. with at all. I haven't done any sort of listening to it, sitting down and listening to it. That's also part of the soundtrack. What I've been mostly focused on is the score, which is what the, the, the composer writes, right? And right. He, he might integrate pieces by Kendrick Lamar in, et cetera. That just reminded me, when I was a kid, I really wanted the, the Batman Prince album. Yes. And I accidentally bought the Danny Elfman score. Yes. And I was really upset at first, but... Like, but then you liked it, right? Yeah, I did. I think everyone had that experience. And <laughs> actually, that was the first thing that I thought about when I sort of was given this project to talk about the Black Panther score. I was like, okay, well, first of all, Black Panther is a superhero movie. What do I know about superhero movie scores as a genre? I'm not... I, 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 I'll admit I'm not a huge superhero movie fan. I haven't seen them all. But the first thing I thought of was that Batman of 1989, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was such a cultural event for my generation. Um, yeah. You know, Just it was the, the first major, on. yes, the, the marketing. It was the first, like, super merchandised movie. And it was, it was a great movie, I think, though I haven't gone back and watched it. Maybe it wouldn't seem great to me now. You know, I watched it maybe six months ago. Did you? It, it's... It held, it's, holds up. Yeah, for the most part. There's just some stuff that's going to, but it's not too bad. Yeah. For, so, for yeah. being 30 years old, it's not bad. <laughs> so, I mean, I think if I could talk about that movie a little bit first. Sure, yeah, talk yeah. about Black yeah, Panther since fine. we're on the topic. Um, so I think the soundtrack of that movie was really seminal. And, and when I say the soundtrack, the way it integrated the score and the Prince record. Yeah. Right? Because first of all, that was, I think, think the first superhero movie that Danny Elfman scored. Yeah. And Danny Elfman is, his style is immediately recognizable 
whatever kind of movie he's he's scoring, it's it's uh, what you might call neo romantic style in that it draws heavily on 19th century people like Wagner, yeah. Tchaikovsky, the, these 19th century European composers, but filtered through earlier 20th century Hollywood composers like Bernard Herrmann, especially, if you've heard like any of the Hitchcock soundtracks, yeah, right. right? So there's this lineage in American Hollywood movies of soundtracks which have this kind of rich, very highly emotional 19th century romantic scoring. And, you know, you have sort of like light motifs for different characters or different mm-hmm. scenes. The, the, the soundtrack kind of grabs you by the collar and pulls you through the plot, right. right? Elfman was one of the two composers who I think really revived that style in Hollywood. The other one being John Williams. Yeah. So I think if you think of John had, Williams in his, his uh, Star Wars soundtrack, his Raiders of the Lost Ark soundtrack, right? Or even Superman, he's got a... And Pretty Superman, heavy, yeah. 1978, right? So he was another person who was writing, you know, kind of bringing back this neo-romantic style, whereas other, you know, I think film composers at the time were moving on to other ways of writing movie music. And the thing about Elfman is that he took that neo-romantic style and did it in a kind of ironic, like he blows up the emotions so big that yeah. you're almost laughing, right? Yeah. And that was what Batman, it was this kind of... I don't know, Wagnerian fantasy, but kind of funny at the same time, that's Tim Burton's style. I, th- I don't think you can mm-hmm. think about Elfman without thinking about Tim Burton and the way their, their two styles yeah. mesh so well. But then the other interesting thing, so it was like an ironic neo-romanticism in soundtracks. Then there's this interruption in the middle of the movie, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? When I think the, the Joker, Jack Nicholson, walks into the museum I think oh, it's a yeah. museum, right? Yes. And he's got a whole posse with him. One of them's carrying a huge boombox radio, which was the icon yeah. of a certain kind of uh, urbanity called, at the they're time. They're called ghetto blasters. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So it, it was marked racially, right? This was, right. you know, in the ongoing American conversation about white music and black music at that time. That was an insignia of that of of black music, mm-hmm. right? This is, I think, maybe the same year as Do the Right Thing, but I'm not sure. Anyway, sort of around the same time. So this, you know, you have this Wagnerian neo-romantic score, and then all of a sudden it's interrupted, it stops, and Jack Nicholson comes on, and they play the Prince album, right? Yeah. And the contrast between the two things. <laughs> and they're desecrating the, the It's a art. desecration <laughs> of, of the Wagnerian thing. Yeah. And it's, it, it works really wonderfully. Which made like Batman kind of, you know, it wasn't just a, a, a typical superhero movie. It was kind of funny at the same time. It was, I have to think about more about what that, how that soundtrack works. And, yeah, but and the, like it, read it within the longer, you know, imaginaries of race right. and racialized music in this country. But there's something going on there. Yeah, but it kind of ties into what you talked about in the, the panel presentation with the use of hip-hop and Black Panther. Yes, Can you, exactly. Can, so it, here's a, here's, here comes, you know, how many years later, uh, another superhero movie. Um, and the Black Panther soundtrack, I think it has three very clearly distinguished streams in it. One of them is African music. So Gorenson spent two months in Senegal with uh, Baba Mal, who if you don't know Baba Mal, he's a really big world music star, a, a wonderful singer. You hear Baba Mal's voice in the Black Panther soundtrack as well. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of like an icon of Senegalese, West African music. Okay. So he went and toured with his band 
and he recorded his musicians, especially the drummers, and incorporated those sounds. That kind of those that drumming became the basis for the Wakanda stream of the Black Panther soundtrack. Right. Okay. So whenever you see T'Challa or Wakanda, you're going to be hearing this Senegalese drumming. That's his kind of leitmotif. Mm-hmm. Um, second stream is uh, Killmonger's music and the music of sort of this America, I would say, yeah. you know, sort of global intrigue, and that's hip-hop. Right? So that's where they sort of blend in some of the, the Kendrick Lamar rap music and also kind of um, electronic dance music. Gurrenson, besides being a Hollywood composer, is also a producer for, for a, a Childish Gambino. Um, mm-hmm. And so he's, he was really versed in hip-hop already, and so he does... He was able to bring that into the, the the soundtrack, but it's very much sort of like representing these different spaces that exist in the movie. One is this Africa, one or Wakanda, this sort of fantasy Africa. Um, one is the United States and sort of global in, intrigue. And then the binding agent for all for these different kinds of music is the neo romantic superhero movie style, which again yeah. traces back to Wagner and and uh, the 19th century European symphonic composition. Right. So that, in some ways, it, like it mediates between these two musical worlds. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a very different way of mediating that, or, or a way of sort of bringing two different musical styles into or musical genres into conflict than what you find in Batman. You know, it's, uh, but I was interested when I've been listening to it, what I've been interested in is like, well, how does he balance these different streams against each other? How, is there tension in between them? Does he, how, what kind of techniques does he use to bring those worlds together, right? As mm-hmm. opposed to sort of head-on collision the way they were done in Batman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember in the presentation, you kind of had a, a bit of a critique of the way the music or the predominance of one type of, of drumming style from one specific part of Africa, in this case, you West Africa and Senegal, and then the predominance of um, the Western classical music over the whole thing, and then the association with hip hop uh, with the the antagonist essentially. So, could you talk a little bit about that and your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say this is you know, I think it's just something maybe to be aware of, and yeah, I think yeah. I need to listen to it more. But I do think that. Overall, Wakanda is represented as as a very sort of highly traditional place. It yeah. has this high technology, super advanced technology. But in other respects, you look at it, and, and it's very much this vision of a traditional Africa. Yeah. And the music sort of supports that because it takes this sabar drumming and tama drumming. You'll hear it's like do 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 do. That's that's the sound. Takes it away from any modern context in which that drumming might be used. So in Baba Mall's band, you would hear that with electric guitars, you'd hear it with keyboards, you'd hear it with a full, very modern, contemporary sound. Mm -hmm. Gorenson was only interested in the drums, which he describes as you know African traditional music. And then he borrowed he borrowed a little bit of African traditional music from different parts of the continent, you know, Zimbabwe, South Africa, etc. So you have this very traditional sound being constructed around Wakanda. And then that gives a different meaning in my ear to, to the, the, 19th, the neo-romantic style, the orchestral style. Yeah. Because there's hi- this history in the 19th century in Europe 
inspired by, especially by the philosopher Herder, a lot of these composers were looking for the folk music of their particular nationalities, right? So you would take a little song from your country uh, and incorporate it into this symphonic texture. So it becomes kind of the raw material for for the modernizing orchestral texture. And I think to some degree that happens in Black Panther. So you have this drumming, which is divorced from any context which might be thought of as modern, uh, modern African. And then you take that drumming and you reincorporate it into this 19th century, I would say like almost an imperial orchestral texture to the, to the overall effect of further removing Wakanda from any kind of real African modernity. Right? Yeah. Um, the U.S. has a modernity in that movie. Asia has a modernity. But... Wakanda is in this kind of split space where it's partly super traditional and super futuristic, right. but it's not sort of situated in the now. You know, I've thought about, you know, what are some different ways that this effect could have been m- mitigated for me? And I think maybe you could have shot a scene in, in a contemporary African setting. Yeah. Um, there is, someone reminded me that there's like a market scene that reminds them of market scenes in contemporary Africa. So mm-hmm. I may, I've only seen the film once, I have to admit, yeah, but yeah. like there may be more than I remember. But nonetheless, you know, uh, they do shoot a lot of scenes in contemporary Korea. Well, why couldn't you have shot those in, say, yeah. contemporary Lagos? Or, yeah. I keep talking to African students here at UNC, you know, uh-huh. who are talking to friends and relatives in Africa and trying to get, you know, is this something that Africans themselves are, are noticing and is it bothersome to anyone? Would they like to see more of contemporary real Africa yeah. in the film? I, no one has said that to be. <laughs> so it could just, you know, be uh, a, cr- a critique that only I am thinking about but or, or worried about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, it fits into a pattern, does it? Doesn't yeah. it? You know, I, yeah. we, there's a long history of consigning Africa to a past which is either construed as like primitive and bad in that respect or uh, redemptive, right? Some sort of magical Africa to which African-Americans, you know, which will eventually be redeemed by African-Americans, by the diaspora coming back to redeem and and learn from from their traditions, right? This is a, that's a really, uh, that's sort of the central idea of Afrocentricity, et cetera. If you don't mind it, I have one more question. Yeah. This is something we ask everyone. Um, what's a book that changed your life? A book that changed my life. So I'm going to just answer the first thing that came to my head, even though it has nothing to do with what we were just That's talking perfect. about. perfect. That's fine. Um, and I'm going to say Delirious New York. Have you ever heard of this no. book? No. It's by an architect named Rem Koolhaas, and it's about it's sort of an analysis of architecture historically in, in New York City. And makes a certain argument about a certain kind of modernity that emerges in the architecture of New York City and then sort of collapses once we get into the 1970s. And this was just an important book to me because I'd never really read this kind of cultural analysis before. Yeah. Um, And it kind of taught me how to do that. I'm not, I think if I were to read it again now, I'm not sure it would have the same impression on me, but it was sort of a turning point for me in college, like got me excited about 
what humanists do, which is we talk about, I think all of us talk about large historical moments, right? Mm-hmm. We talk, talk about like, okay, what was it like to be in this place at this time? How did music play into that? How did architecture play into that? What kind of story can we tell about a particular moment? And that moment was never just a, defined by the present, which doesn't really exist anyway, but it's a, a, a moment in history is always defined by how people are looking into the past at that time yeah. and how they're looking into the future. So every historical moment has its futures. And that's what this book was about to some yeah. degree. It was about how architects at particular times in New York's history were envisioning the future and how those futures changed. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for your time. This is- Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.